Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with Connecticut-based top performers who represent the very best in their field and how they are making an impact in their industry and here at home in Connecticut. Thanks for listening. There's no question about it. He is one of the most well-known media personalities right here in Connecticut. His warm personality, sense of humor, and dynamic character are a part of the Channel 3 weather team and, of course, Great Day Connecticut in the afternoons. If you haven't guessed it, we're thrilled to have Scott Haney from WFSB on the show. Scott started his broadcast career back in the mid-1990s, but he landed at Channel 3 in November of 1998, and he hasn't looked back since. He earned his bachelor's from St. John's University in New York City, his master's degree from Syracuse University, and he's a proud graduate of the American Meteorological Society, and that's what makes him a weatherman, but as we'll learn, it wasn't so easy. His career path wasn't quite figured out. Scott had a burning passion to be on TV, but he oftentimes found himself working in jobs he didn't want. His story is all about perseverance and setting goals to do what you really want to do in life. Scott is also a nonstop driving force in the Connecticut community, volunteering at various events and making a commitment to help good causes any way he can. He's received numerous awards and accolades for his community support, including awards from My Sister's Place, the American Red Cross, and many others, and he's heavily involved in the Channel 3 Kids Camp. So let's get up front with Scott Haney and learn more about his career path, failures, triumphs in life, and what being on the news has taught him. All right. Welcome to Upfront, Scott Haney. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you, Derek? I'm doing well. So I always ask this question, where are you physically at this moment in time? I am physically at Channel 3 in Rocky Hill. Where else would you be, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's my home. It's your home away from home, or it is your home. Uh, No, my home is my home away from home. This is my real home. There you go. Okay, so we're going to go way back, right, before we get to today. Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Comac, Long Island, uh, home of Rosie O'Donnell. She grew up five houses away from me. She she went on to become rich and famous, and I just ended up at Channel 3, which is totally fine. I love what I'm doing. (laughs) Uh, It's a great gig. I love what I do, but I grew up in Long Island. I had two older brothers. I have two older brothers. Uh, my mom and dad are still with me. God bless. They're, my mom is going to be 90 this year. My dad is going to be 91. God bless them. And um, they're happily divorced. Thank God. And uh, they live about five minutes away from each other in, in Comac. So when I go, I visit both of them. I'm actually headed down there today. And uh, they're in okay health. My mother's in better health than my father. But uh, growing up, I went to Comac High School South. I was a Spartan. Um, had a good, uh, a good, pretty good childhood. Um, we, you know, we grew up 20 minutes from the South shore, 15 minutes from the North shore. So we spent a lot of time at the beach. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask what, what was life like growing up 
in, in, yeah, it, it was a lot of beach time, especially during the summer, you know, school, obviously during the year. And then um, during the summers, I was kind of like a latchkey kid. My mom worked from the time that I was in fifth grade. So she went off to work and I was basically self-sufficient. You know, that was at a time you could do that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had neighbors who had built-in pools and I, I just would spend, if I wasn't at the beach and my mom was working, I was in, in their built-in pool. And, um, you know, the best thing, best, the best thing to have is a friend with a built-in pool. You don't want it yourself. You want a friend with one. <laughs> exactly. No, I had, so, a friend, I had a friend who had a pool too. And it was like, hey, I'm coming over. Yeah, I'm coming over. Or you show up on their door with a towel and nose plugs and say, hey, what are you doing? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you, you said you were a Spartan. Did you play any sports growing up? I, 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 I was on the tennis team for about a hot minute and uh, didn't really work out. Um, so, no, I was more of a band guy and choir guy. Okay. I was in the marching band. So, as I like to say, I was an athletic supporter. There you go. What did you do in the marching band? Did you play drums, trumpet? I, I played I played baritone horn. Okay. All right. Yeah. Have you have you have you tried playing? Have you played since or no? I used to play before um, in the eighth grade. I took up no in the fifth grade. I took up trumpet, and then in the eighth grade, I wanted to be first trumpet, like in the band section. Yeah. And my my music teacher said you're never going to be first trumpet. And I said, okay. He's like, but you can be first baritone horn. And I said, How, why is that? He goes, because you'll be the only one to play the instrument. Ah. So I said, awesome. <laughs> so I, uh, I picked up the baritone horn and uh, had a good time. And uh, it, was, it was fun. But uh, I have picked up the trumpet since then. I can still play the Burger King song. There you go. Yeah, it's, I, I asked that question because I used to play guitar and I haven't touched it in like, 25 years and I just bought an acoustic guitar. So, Oh, good for you. Yeah. So my, my fingers are nice and sore. Um, so you mentioned you have um, siblings, brothers, right? Yes. Are you youngest, oldest, middle? I am the youngest of three boys. My brother is going to be 65. My oldest brother. How old is that? Uh, my middle brother is going to be, he just turned 63 and I'm going to be 58. So you got away with murder growing up, being the being the baby. Yeah, but you know, by the time that I was twelve, they were out of the house. Okay. So it was basically I was like basically raised as like an only child. It was me and my parents. What were your childhood aspirations like? Did you always want to be, you know, on TV, or what did you want to be when you grew up, so to speak? Yeah, I um, I always wanted to be on television. I started watching the Mary Tyler Moore show when I was like nine. Yep. My parents used to let me stay up and watch the show. And it was about WJM, a newsroom, and all of the antics that went on with the newsroom. Like, obviously, they didn't get into the news or anything like that. But I was like, that. the show was so fabulous. And I was like, that's what I want to do one day is work in a newsroom. So that was like my first impression of how I wanted to be in television news. And then as I got older, I really liked watching the news. Yeah. But I didn't think that a middle-class kid from Comac, Long Island – could end up on television. I just didn't think it was in the cards. Why is that? So I really, I, I kind of squelched the dream and I went off to college and I got a business degree. And then when I graduated college, I had worked in a supermarket too, Derek, my whole life. I worked uh, so, from the Listen, time so did I at one point. Did I, you? Yep. I was a bagger and then I did stock. I know I was a bagger. Then I became a cashier. Then I became a front end manager. 
Then I became the bookkeeper. And then I, you know, I, and then I was courtesy desk. I did it. I did it all. And I worked there for 12 years. Uh, it was during all the, from the time I was 16, all the way until I was like 28. Wow. And I worked at the supermarket so long that I got a pension. Unbelievable. So at the and this age is of like, 62, it, was this like a, a, a mom and pop supermarket? Cause that's no, what I, it was, no, it was a big chain. It was, it was called Pathmark. They're not in oh, yeah. business anymore. I've heard of it though. Yep. Pathmark savings all over means a lot more savings overall. A lot more <laughs> savings overall. Yeah, that was there, the, uh, that was, that the was jingle. one of the jingles. There yeah, one of the jingles. But um, so I worked there my whole life. So when I graduated from college, I just assumed that I would go work in the supermarket. And my friends did one of these interventions where they kind of surround you and they were like, you know, you have this degree. You just got out of college. You should really go into the city and work in the city. And I said, well, what would I do? And they're like, well, what do you like to do? I said, well, I like clothes. I like to shop. They're like, you should go into retail. Yeah. And I said, all right, that's a good idea. So I applied to Saks Fifth Avenue and Macy's. And I didn't get the job at Macy's, but I got accepted into Saks Fifth Avenue's executive training program. Mm. And they take 35 recent college grads and they put them through like a six month training program. Yep. And when, by the time you graduate, you're an assistant buyer. So I did that and I was promoted like third out of the class of 35. I, uh, and it's not because I was smart, it's because I was funny. And they, <laughs> they, they loved my attitude. So I got promoted and I, I became an assistant buyer for Saks Fifth Avenue Contemporary Denim. There you I, go. I have no idea what that is still to this day. Um, but at the age of, uh, I mean, at the, uh, at, after being there for six months, I said, this is not something that I want to do. Mm. I want to be on television. So I said, you know what, if I, you know, I can't be, I'm not doing news, obviously. So I'm going to become an actor. And I, um, got a headshot. I sent my headshot around to the local soup, uh, soap operas in New York city. Yeah. I got called from one life to live. And I did some extra work on One Life to Live. This was back 100, like 1989, 88, 89. And then um, I realized it was very long days, very little pay, and you didn't get to say anything. Mm. So I was like, well, this isn't really my dream. Like, you know, it was kind of cool watching myself in the background when the episodes aired. But I was like, this is not exactly what I bargained for. So I decided to go back to retail. And I went back to Brooks Brothers. And I got a job at Brooks Brothers. I figured if I were buying men's clothing, it would be something I would enjoy more. And I met a woman there. Her name was Carol Engelhart. She's still one of my best friends to this day. Mm. And um, she looked at me and she said, what are you doing? And I said, you know, I'm sending suits to Palm Beach. And she's like, no, no, no. She's like, what are you doing with your life? She's like, do you want to work here? And I was like, not really. So she's like, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be in television news. She was like, do you have any experience in television news? And I said, no. She's like, do you have any education in television news? I said, no. She's like, do you know anybody in television news? And I said, no. She's like, well, how the hell are you? She's like, how are you going to do this? So I said, I don't know. She's like, you need to go back to school. Mm. I said, okay. So she's like, you should go back to Syracuse. She had gone to Syracuse. They had, you know, the, they have one of the best uh, communication programs in the United States. Yep. And she's like, you should go to Syracuse. 
So she helped me fill out my applications. I got accepted. Um, and I went for two years to Syracuse University, and they taught me every single thing I ever needed to know to be on television. That's amazing. So yeah, and it was a full it was a full ride. Wow, I got a full scholarship, so I didn't pay a dime to go to Syracuse, which was amazing. Okay, so I I do want to back up just yeah a, a little bit um, because okay, this is this is eventually leading to to your career. But what what did your parents do for work? My mom worked for Grumman Aerospace. Yep. She was an office manager. And my dad worked for a family-owned oil company in Richmond Hill in Queens. Um, also um, an office manager. So they were both basically like in office managers in business. Okay. And, and you know, looking back on all of that and where you are today, what kind of values... Did, would you say your parents instilled in you that you still carry with you today? Oh, my, my incredible, incredibly strong work ethic. Yeah. You know, I, I just, um, I, you know, I'm here at work 12, 14 hours a day sometimes. Yep. And, uh, you know, I don't leave until the work is done. I show up, you know, I very rarely knock wood. I very rarely get sick. I don't, I, I, I only take a sick call if I'm absolutely, sick. Um, but, um, no, they instilled in me the values of an incredible work ethic. And if I wanted something at the age of 16, I remember wanting sneakers and I remember wanting a car mm. at the age of 16 and they were like, go get it, work for it and earn the money to buy it. Yeah. It was like, they gave you the permission, but you're going to have to do this to get it. Exactly. Right. Like We're you want a car? Great. Right. You know, we'll um, you know, we'll help out with the insurance a little bit, but you got to go buy the car. You got to raise the money to go buy the car. Yeah, that's that's great. Like, that's a great story because so many people will so many parents will say, no, you're not getting a new car. You know, and it's like your parents are giving you the permission, but you've got to work for it. Yeah, so, you got to work for it. Yeah. And I remember I remember going to the Honda dealership and I was like, I'm getting a new car. I'm getting a new car. This is like when I was 17, 18. It was two hundred and fifty three dollars a month. The insurance would have been like $2,000 a year. I was like, I can't afford this. And my mother's like, you know what? You can't afford this. Yeah. So I ended up buying a Chevy Monza. Ah. That was that was the worst car ever, but I loved it. <laughs> my first car was a 1977 Plymouth Volare that I, oh, that I bought. I love it. That I bought from like a widow. She was like, this is my husband's car. It was in an immaculate, in, in immaculate condition. This is like, you know. Uh, late 1980s when I got this thing. And it was, it had like 20,000 miles and I bought it for 500 bucks. Yeah. yeah. And I had the predecessor. I had the Plymouth Duster. Oh, there you go. So gigantic. Yeah, gigantic cars, right? Oh, huge. Huge. <laughs> okay. So you go back to school to, to Syracuse and, and what did you study there? You're in the communications program. You're studying meteorology. What, what, what's happening? No, I got I got accepted into the media, uh, the uh, graduate program for television, radio, and film. Okay, and I said, "Oh, this is going to be perfect." And I got there, and it was about writing things and mm. coming up with uh, theories. Uh, you know, uh, you know, coming up with uh, documentary ideas and doing the documentary and coming up, you know, you had to make a commercial and film the commercial 
And, you know, it was everything that and lighting classes and different things about film. And, and I was like, this is not, this is not what I need to learn. Yeah. Like I, I, it was, it was important for me, obviously, but I wanted a concentration in news. I wanted to learn how to do news. Yeah. So the program was for, for a year. The graduate program was for a year. I went to my advisor and I said, I'm not learning what I need to learn. I said, I need to learn television news. She's like, you need to take the undergraduate courses with the undergrads. And I said, well, then sign me up. So she said, we're going to extend your, your scholarship for another year. And she's like, you need to take every class that the undergraduates take. And that's what I did. So I learned every single thing about, so one class we did, um, I was the news, you know, one day you were the news director, the next day you were the news reporter, the next day you were the sports anchor, the next day you were the weather guy, the next day you were the anchor. And, you know, you would rotate and do all the different positions in a newsroom. Yep. Every time I did the weather, my professors were like in the back going, and I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, you should do the weather. And I said, I don't know anything about the weather. They're like, don't worry about it. (laughs) I said, how am I going to get a job doing the weather if I don't know anything about weather? They're like, you have the gift of gab. They'll teach you. Yep. So I said, they're like, you you have a the way to tell a story. You've got a presentation style. You you know you this is right up your alley. You should, you know you would be great as an anchor or a reporter, but you'd be a better weather person, a better mm. weatherman. And I said, hmm, that's interesting. So I started tailoring my resume tape to get a job in weather. Okay. And I sent it off after I graduated from Syracuse. I sent it off to, you know, three or four different television stations. One was in Bangor, Maine. I, I don't even know where I don't even know where Bangor is. Up near, um, up near Stephen King. Yeah, exactly. And um, another, I sent it off to Topeka, Kansas. There you go. And you know, all places that didn't require a meteorology degree because I didn't have I don't know I didn't know anything about the weather. So these these people were looking for weather presenters, not so much forecasters, but presenters. So I said, this is right up my alley. So um, I didn't get called on any of the resumes on on any of the tapes that I sent out. And um, I applied to become a page in the NBC organization, um, in the NBC page program. And it's basically like a 10 month internship and you got to do your best you can in that 10 months to parlay yourself into getting a job with NBC. Yeah. So I got the job. It took me like six months to get the job. And then there was a six month wait to start because you have to wait for people to f- come out of the program and then you go in. So I, I got the job. I was very excited about that. And then I was waiting to start the job. And I got a, I, it was almost like a year later that I had grad that I had sent off those resume tapes that I had graduated. And the news director from the Kansas station called me. Again, it was a year after I sent the tape. And I said, can I help you? And he said, yeah. He goes, this is John Rinkenbau, KSNT, Topeka 27. And I said, how are you? He's like, good. He's like, you still interested in doing the weather? And I said, is this a joke? I, I actually, Derek, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> so he said, uh, we have a job opening that I, I'm, and if you're, if you're still interested in doing it, 
then the job is then the job is yours. And I said, the, has the job been open a year? They said, no, we hired someone. It didn't work out. They were here for a year. We just let them go. The position is yours. We're willing to take a chance on you. You're a little quirky. Mm. So I said, okay. So, um, and I said, John, I said, I got to ask what made you keep, you know, for a year, you kept my resume. And I had done a Letterman-esque. This was very popular back at the time, the top 10 Letterman list. Yeah, I remember and I did a top, I did a top 10 list of reasons why they should hire me. I'll be as corny as Kansas in August. Scott W. Haney, Scott W. Haney, the W stands for weather. Um, I work under high pressure and low pressure. I mean, just dumb things. Yeah, yeah. But he got he got a big kick out of it. And he said, if you want the job, it's yours. So they offered me $14,000. I was going to do Saturday and Sunday weather, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, soft news. And then Thursdays and Fridays would be my day off for $14,000 a year. This was 1993. This is 19, not 1973. This is 1993. Wow. So I was a shrewd negotiator. I got them up to 16,000. And I, <laughs> I took the job and I drove to Kansas. And um, that was my first job in television. How long were you there? Three months. Three months. Okay. I quit. Did I you quit? You quit. You couldn't take it. Did, didn't it, you want it? Isn't it? It's incredible, right? You, you want something, you get it. And then you realize, oh man, I don't, I don't want this. Well, I, you know, it was so funny is I wanted the job. Yep. I wanted the job so bad. I didn't want it there. Yeah. Yeah. Where and did you, where did you want it? On the, the East Coast. The I wanted to coast. be. I wanted to be. I'm a homebody. I wanted to be within driving distance of my home in Long Island. Yeah. Now, throw in. I had just met Paul, my partner. Yep. I had met him one month before I got this opportunity to go to Kansas. Yeah. So you've you know, got, you're homesick. You've got a, a, a new partner in life, right? You know, I know it was a new relationship, but I was like, you know, he was the one. We were going to make this work. And he said, I'll stick with you. If you, if you got to go to Kansas, then we'll do it by phone and I'll come visit and you'll come visit. And then, um, they hired a chief meteorologist who was a complete, I don't even know what he was. He didn't like me and I didn't like him. And I was just like, I, I just don't want to, I, I, I was homesick and I, and I got up and I left and my mother, you know, she was like, come home. And I, I knew I was making a big mistake, but at the same time, I was so relieved to be out of there. And then is this when you worked in advertising in New York? Yes. Did you, did you like that? I was in human resources in ah, advertising. Okay. So you got to see all the resumes and fire people. And yes. Yeah. And I got a temp. I, I, I took a temp job at gray advertising in New York city. Yeah as the uh, assistant to the senior vice president of human resources. And he, after three months, he was like, you're, he goes, you want this job? He goes, it's yours if you want it. And I said, how much does it pay? He said, 37,000. I said, I'll take the job. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was broke. I needed money. So um, my dream, I, I stayed there for two years. And then I ended up going to a stock photography agency as their operations manager. Again, knew nothing about the job. I fell into it. Yeah. Um, and um, I got a, uh, my dream of being on television was slipping away. It but had then, been three years. 
But then you land on News 12, New Jersey. Then I get to News 12. Good for you. Um, I get a call from somebody I had gone to Syracuse with, an undergrad. Yep. And she, she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm miserable. I'm in the city. You know, um, I, I, I'm, I'm not doing anything in my field. She's like, there's a, there's a part-time job open at News 12 in New Jersey. They're looking for a weather presenter. You don't have to be a meteorologist. You should apply for the job. So I said, okay. She's like, but you can't use me as a reference because they hate me here. I was <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I said, oh, great. So... I applied and I got the job because the, the, the news director was into theater. Okay. And, you and he, he saw something theatrical about me and he hired me and that part-time job turned into a full-time job mm. at, at news 12 in New Jersey at news 12 in Westchester. Yeah. But when I got the job in Westchester, they asked me what I knew about the weather and I had to say nothing. Right. Right. So, so they're like, you have to go back to school. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. They're like, no, you have to learn to be, you have to become a meteorologist. And I said, that is incredibly difficult. And they said, well, you want the job, you're going to have to do it. We'll pay for it, but you got to go back to school and do it. And you did it. And I did it. I took seven classes determined by the American Meteorological Society. You can call yourself a meteorologist after you take these seven classes. Yep. It was excruciating. It took me five years to do it under a part-time. I took one class a semester. It was so, uh, my cousin is uh, graduated with like a physics degree from Princeton. He, I would drive to Philadelphia to get help, extra help. Uh, like every three weeks, I would drive there to get extra help in the classes. Mm. And I managed to get through these classes somehow. And um, and and then the rest is history. Because there's, you know, people think, oh, you just you, you just get up and turn on the computers and it's going to tell you the weather. But there's like a ton of science behind oh, this. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And that was my I, growing up. I wanted I wanted to be a doctor. And then when I got into high school in science and physics classes, I was absolutely terrible. I can't, I can't stand the biology and the science and the math. And it was like, well, you're never going to be a doctor. So right. <laughs> I mean, I, I I took ceramics in high school, not yeah. physics. Right, right. I, That's yeah. a true story. I took photography, home ec. You know, these things like interested me. You know journalism and, and, and English and history. I love those classes, but anything yep. else, forget it. Okay. So your news 12, how do you end up? Let, let's fast forward to FSB. You know, it's such a legacy station in, you know, you're without question, one of the mo most well-known um, personalities in the well, news, in the, in the news business. I mean, everybody loves you. And, but tell us about like arriving at FSB. W what year was it? I get an agent. I get a talent agent while I'm working at News 12. Yep. And they're like, you're quirky. You're funny. You know, you're not going to work any everywhere. You're not going to work in the middle of the country. I'm like, good, because I already tried that. They're like, you're either going to end up on the West Coast or the East Coast. So he's like, and it's going to take us a while to find you a job because it's got to be the right fit. Yeah. So I said, OK. So I waited um, probably about a year. And then they called uh, Kenny Slotnick was my agent and he called and he said, we got a part-time weather job open 
you don't have to be a meteorologist, um, but they want you to continue with your schooling because I had started schooling. Uh, you don't have to be a meteorologist, but um, it's weekends and Mondays, 10 hours on Mondays working behind the scenes with the other meteorologists. And I was like, all right. I said, I'll go for the interview. Steve Sabata was the news director. He calls me in after, I, I think I waited like an hour and a half in the waiting room to get into this interview. And I was like, I think you forgot about me. I really honestly do. I think you forgot about me. And then he calls me in. He's like, you're not a meteorologist. He's like, I really don't want to hire you. He's like, I'm just seeing you because I'm good friends with Kenny Slotnick, your agent. And I said, oh, so I, I didn't think I was going to get the job. And I said, okay. I said, well, I've done a little research. I said, your ratings are in the toilet. I said, oh, hang on a minute. You have no ratings uh, in the morning. In the evening, we were always the legacy station. Yeah. But in the morning, we, always, we struggled. And I said, give me a year. I said, if I don't turn the mornings around, at least on the weekends, I said, then we'll part ways. Mm. So he said, he said you, he's like, you got yourself a deal. He's like, you got one year. And then he yelled at me. Oh, my God. He's still one of my, he's still a very close friend. Uh, not a, he, he's still in my life, I should say. We're, we're, we're good friends. And, um, but he yelled at me. I, every time I did something on the air, he would yell at me. Yeah. And then I was just like, and then Paul, my partner, was just like, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And Denise Desenzo, who was at this, you know, un unfortunately she's passed, but yeah. uh, she gave me some advice. She's like, just remember, she's like, the cream always rises to the top. She's like, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And that year, the numbers went up. Mm. And they added an extra hour to the weekend shows. And then they added another hour. And then they added another hour to Sunday show. And then they added another hour. So the one hour show on Saturday and Sunday became two hours, which then became three hours. Wow. Because they were selling, they were finally able to sell the show because they yep. had some viewers. Yep. And then after that year, they said, we want you to become full-time. And I said, there's no weather openings full-time. And they said, you're going to do soft news. You'll do feature stories Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You'll, um, and you're going to leave enough for us to run on Thursdays and Fridays when you're not here so that you still have a presence Thursday for Thursday and Friday. So I did. I did, you know, the blueberry, picking it, baking it, and turning it into a scrub. I mean, I did three stories, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, on the blueberry. The next week was <laughs> animal shelters. The next week, you know, it was always something. Yeah, yeah. And um, then in uh, 2003, they fired the chief, Miles Musio. They promoted Bruce who was the morning weather guy and they gave me the morning weather spot that was in 2003. So that was almost 20 years ago now. And I've been on the morning. Ever, I've been on that morning show ever since. And that's where we met when I would deliver Krispy Kreme donuts, who was a client of ours. <laughs> <laughs> what, an, what a time to be alive, right? It was, <laughs> you know, that's I would show, awesome. I, I would show up there with the Krispy Kreme, like marketing director, Yep. You know, when we were opening that store for them in and Newington. It and it worked. It was like just very guerrilla 
marketing. Let's show up to all the media outlets. You know, there we are banging on the door at like 5 a.m., you know, but uh, it's exciting times. Um, we'll talk some more about the news, but I want to learn more about you as a person, the choices, the habits, the things you do that make you who you are. So I don't have to ask this. I know you're an early riser, but I want to know about your daily routine. What, what time do you get up? I get up. At, uh, the alarm is set for 2.20. 2.20 a.m. My God, sometimes people are going to bed at that hour. Yeah, 2.20 a.m. I hit the snooze button twice. Yep. I get up around 2.47, 250. I mean, I do, I get in the shower. I put my suit on. Everything is done the night before. I lay everything out the night before. Okay, so all, you lay, lay things out the night before. Yeah, all meals are prepped. Yep. The night before, like I, I have my breakfast with me. I have my lunch with me. What time do you go to bed? Um, last night was a late night. I didn't get to bed till nine. Okay. But on, on a normal night, I'll be in bed by seven. Seven o'clock. Yeah, you have to, right? Your body just demands it. Yeah. So seven o'clock and, you know, I get up at 2.20, 2.30. I'm in the office by 3.30, 3.40. And then we go on the air at 4.30. Okay. So I like this routine you have. You you lay things out. You prep everything the night before. Any other kind of special morning routines? Like some people meditate or some people no. don't, don't look at email. No, you're you're up and at it. Up and at it. First thing I do is I check my phone. Yep. Uh, make sure the world is still here, and <laughs> um, check for text messages that came in overnight. You know, because yep. my friend, they, you know, they forget that I'm going to bed at seven, right. so they're all up texting at nine, ten o'clock. I look and I check my text messages, and then um, I, it's I'm, I, I got a real quick thing. I mean, I'm up at like two fifty. I'm in the car by like three twenty. Yeah. Wow. You're so finished. I shower shave, uh, put my suit on, I get my food out of the refrigerator and I'm in the car and I'm at work. It's a very quick turnaround. Hmm. Okay. And you know, this is a, a kind of a bigger question, but you know, you're in the news and there's so much like ugliness that could be a part of that. There's always a lot of good stuff too, but you know, there, there's a lot of stuff. Where, where do you find inspiration? Um, Where do I find my inspiration? Knowing that, you know, knowing that I'm, I'm doing a good job mm -hmm. and that people appreciate what I'm doing and that people rely on me and they count on me to bring them a message of, of, of maybe it's humor, maybe it's hope. Yeah. Um, maybe it's okay, the world is in such a crazy place. You know, I tune on my television and there's my family, you know, my television family. I felt the same way when I was growing up. You know, I had Jack Cafferty and Sue Simmons live at five. And, you know, every day they were there and it was just like, okay, I know they're going to be there and that's good. So that, that inspires me to get up and come to work. Okay. You do the weather, you do you know, Great Day Connecticut, which yep. focuses on Connecticut and the lifestyle aspects. But, um, you know, throughout your career, is there an accomplishment that you're most proud of? Is, is there something that just makes you feel incredibly good about what you do? Uh, the Channel 3 Kids Camp. I've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of fundraising yep. uh, throughout the years. Um, my charitable work, 
I, I'm very proud of. You know, like I do a lot of events. Mm-hmm. I, and not, you know, since COVID actually hit, you know, obviously they've been tailored back, but they're starting to pick up. Um, I've raised, uh, somebody got together for my, I think it was for my 50th birthday. They assembled a surprise party for me and they had all of the different charities that I had helped at Max downtown in a mm. private room. And I walked in and every agency that I had helped in the past was there to say thank you. Wow. And it was such a remarkable, like, you know, because you don't really think about it. You're just going through the motions and you know you're helping people and you know you're raising money. But that day I was like, you know, I have goosebumps now just remembering that day. And a wonderful woman, Diane Dunn at Chris Radio, she kind of spearheaded the whole thing and put it together along with Gloria McAdam, who's since passed from Food Chair. Uh-huh. Um, but just to know you help people you know, you, you've left a positive mark on society as opposed to being a, you know, a drag on it. Okay, so accomplishments are always fun, fun and easy to talk about. But talk to me about failure. Um, you know, we're, we're so we're so focused on success in life, but but failure, right? Everybody's afraid of the F word, but it can it, it could teach us a lot. Is there something is there something that you failed at, but you thought you were so sure it was going to work, but you failed miserably at it? And what was the lesson you learned? My relationship with Paul. Hmm. That's heavy. It was a big one. Yeah. I never, ever thought we would be apart. A mm. And we are. Yeah. And um, part, a good part of that was my career. I made choices that sacrificed my relationship. Yeah. And that was a big lesson to learn. I didn't see it in the, in the short term. I, I, I didn't see it coming, but um, he was growing more. He was growing increasingly more miserable with me and we're, we're still best friends. Okay. Good. Good. We talk, we talk every day. We talk or text every day. And, um, but, uh, I, every Saturday was a fundraiser. Every Sunday was a public appearance or not every, but you know, three, three out of four weekends a month. And he was like, when are we going to see our friends? And I was like, I got to do this. And you know, you got to come with me. And, you know, there's that line and chorus line that says photographs of me in the background. It became his life, mm. you know, and I, I and I'm, I, I was very sorry about that. And um, I wouldn't do that again. I would absolutely even now that I'm, I'm and I'm single. I've been single for 10 years. Um, I make time for myself. Not every week. I look at the calendar. I'll do one event a month or maybe, maybe, maybe two. Yeah, but I'm not doing 17. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I just, uh, I, I can't do it. I, I, became, I became physically exhausted, and you know, and but that relationship failed, and that was primarily because of me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's no secret, right? Your sexuality. Um, hate to break it to you, ladies that are listening, but um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But in all seriousness, when did you first know know that you you were gay? First grade. First grade. You just knew. 
Yeah, I had a, um, I had Mrs. Peretz, and the sixth graders would come down, like two or three of the sixth graders would come down to help assist with Mrs. with the first grade class. Yep. And it was 1969, 1970. Everybody looked like a hippie. And <laughs> this person came into the room to help us. And I, I had the biggest crush on this person. And I, when I, I, I couldn't tell what it was. I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. And because, uh, you know, she had, she, she had uh, big curly hair and she wore overalls. But I did. I found out it was a girl and I was angry. Hmm. And, um, third grade, I went to sleep. I had a dream that I was going out with Terry Colleen. She was a girl that I went to grade school with. And I remember this dream vividly. We were running from, from, you know, like bad people. They were trying to get us and I rescued Terry and we were going to go off and like live happily ever after. And I woke up that morning, this is third grade thinking, Oh I, I like a girl. Maybe, maybe, maybe I, maybe I, I, I like a girl. Uh, that didn't, you know, it, it, it just didn't happen. You know, I wanted really hard to be straight. Yeah. Really yeah, was, hard. In, in doing my research, you know, you knew early on, but you came out much later. You were what in your twenties? 26. Was it difficult? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was difficult. Um, I never really told my father. He found out because we had to go to his, uh, we had to go to my sister-in-law's 35th surprise birthday party. And I showed up with Paul and I didn't even introduce them. I walked over to my father and I said, hello, how are you? And we had had a, my parents' divorce was kind of messy and I, I kind of sided with my mother and hadn't spoken to my father in a couple of years. So at this event, I went, went over to him and I said, how are you? And he said, good, it's good to see you. And I said, likewise. And I said, and he's like, you know, I'd love to see you. And I said, you know, I said, okay, well, I said, you know, we'll get in touch. And he sent me a letter in the mail um, about a week later. And he said, I'd love to take you out to dinner. And I please bring, please bring your friend Paul along too. Hmm. And I was like, okay. I said, well, he knows I was there with Paul and he must know who Paul is. So, um, but you know, in 1980, you didn't come out. And then AIDS scared me right back into the closet. Even if I was thinking about coming out, yeah. I was not, I was not coming out. Yeah. You know, and then, um, uh, 1990, 1990 hits. And I meet this kid who was like six years younger than me in, you know, a freshman in college. And um, that was the first person like I ever kissed for like for real in my life. Hmm. And I was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. And I remember that day I was it was a 30 mile drive from the supermarket to my house. I had been commuting um, because I needed full time. And they sent me to the supermarket where I was going to work full time. Right before I went off to Syracuse, I was trying to save some money. And I remember driving home after that kiss thinking the world has begun and the world has ended. Yeah, so it was like one part of you closing and one Which, part. No, one part of me was ecstatic. Just opening up this whole, yeah. Just so overjoyed with that emotion and that feeling mm. of connecting with another human being. 
And then the other part of me was like, you'll never run for Congress. You'll never be able to tell anybody this. You'll never, you know, now everybody who's ever said that I was gay and then I denied in my life is now they're right and I'm wrong. Yeah. It, it, is it easier to come out today than it was then? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Much, much easier. You know, Not that it's easy. Right. Right. Don't get me, it's, it's, it's still a challenge. Everybody's got a story and everybody's got trials and tribulations. But I think it's so in the mainstream that, um, you know, Will and Grace, these sitcoms that came out sure. with more and more gay characters. Now it's hard. You're hard pressed to find a sitcom without a gay subplot. Yeah. You know, even this, you know, we, we interviewed this guy, um, one of the uh, Brandon Scott. Um, I can't remember his full name. He's on Ghosts now, which is a, a big hit on CBS. Yeah. And he's gay in the show. Like, you know, his ghost is was gay 250 years ago, but he couldn't act on it. Mm. And now 250 years later, he's still a ghost, but he still can't act on it because he, you know, it's 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 a crazy subplot. But there's, you know, there's a gay line in everything now. Yeah. If you were to give someone advice who's thinking of coming out or having a challenge with that, like, what would you say to them? Have a strong network, of, have a strong support system, have friends, you know, um, have friends that you can talk to, um, make preparations. If you know your family's, you know, you're talking to your family and they're not going to be cool with it before, you know, I know some people when I was growing up, they got kicked out of their houses. Yeah. You know, but that's happening less and I hope it's happening less and less these days. Um, but just make sure you have a strong support group that you can count on and that you could, you know, bounce things off of. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are great words of advice. OK, so you are constantly in demand. You're on TV. Um, you know, you've got a busy life. How do you disconnect from it all? You have no show to do. You've got no weather to report. What do you do to break away? I bought, I, I broke down. Um, it was, when we were growing up, we had a small sailboat. <clears throat> Nothing elaborate. It was like a 25, I mean, not that it was an unelaborate. Un I mean, anybody who can have, we, we had a sailboat. I don't know how we got it. Okay. Uh, it was a 25 foot Catal Catal Catalina. And we would, we would sail back and forth on the Great South Bay. And we would go to Fire Island every mm -hmm. weekend. And there was Cherry Grove and the Pines. And if you know anything about sailing, you have to tack. So you can't just go in a straight line. You got to go with the wind. Mm -hmm. And you got to go where the wind is coming out of. So one day it would be Sailor's Haven. The next day it would be the Pines. So I grew up from the age of eight or nine in these gay communities. Yep. We went to the beach and everybody was gay. And I was like, are they training me? What's happening? What, what's happening? What's going on here? Um, and I, that was going to the beach and just being with my family and um, the nostalgia that I have for that time in my life was, has never left. 
So I said, you know, I remember being on the beach one day and looking up at some of the homes on Fire Island and say, you know, one day I'm going to own a house here. Mm. So I didn't buy a house, but I bought a condo. Okay. In the Pines, in Fire Island. And I go, I go there and I get away. I hear it's a magical place. I, it I, is. It's magical. There's no cars. There's, uh, there's like very deer. little. Say it again. There's like little deer everywhere walking around. Oh, yeah, around. there's deer yeah. everywhere. They come right up to you and they eat out of your hand and it's it's crazy. Yeah. And my place is 125 steps from the Atlantic Ocean. And I look out on my – I stand out on my deck and I look out at the ocean and I'm like, this is pretty magical. Yeah. You know, I don't know how – it's a young – it's a younger environment. I'm, get, I'm not that young anymore. So how much longer I'm going to keep it? I don't know, but I'm glad I did it. And it's a place to go on the weekends. And I've met some really good friends there. And, um, you know, I look forward to my season in the summer there. So I look forward to that. Excellent. Okay. This is sort of related to, to breaking away. You retire tomorrow and you have to talk about the biggest thing at FSB or the biggest thing throughout your career that's impacted you. What would it be? 9-11. Hmm. That was a big one. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think I, I was worried about that one. Yeah. Um, my news director was not. Um, she was not. Let's just say she wasn't a hugger. <laughs> um, she, she was a little rough around the edges. God, I love her. Um, and um, she was an excellent news director, but um, not 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 not. Anyway, we hugged that day. Wow. And I was like, this is, this is a big, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And, you know, I'm, you know, Bruce, my chief meteorologist, his brother-in-law was on one of the planes. Um, and I was in the city that day because Paul and I lived in the city and I would commute to Hartford. We had a one-bedroom apartment in Hartford that I would stay in during the week, and then I would go back to the city on the weekends. And we had just returned from vacation, and I was off that Tuesday, and I had a haircutting appointment when the plane struck. And I called the newsroom, and I was like, what do you want me to do? And they were like, can you get down there? And I was like, I'm going to do the best I can. So I got on my rollerblades, and I think I was one of the only reporters that made it on air uh, for channel three, because nobody could get into the city. Nobody could get out, really get out of the city. Yeah. And, um, the, well, the people were getting out, but they weren't getting in. That's for sure. Um, and I was really one of the only reporters to make it on air for channel three. That was, a, that was a pretty big deal. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, and you have to, you have to go into work mode, you know, like, you don't, I, who knew how many people had died at that point, but you're just like, these towers just came out of the sky. You think about it, and it's like, what, on, what is happening? And I remember this little boy came up to me. He was on his bicycle. And he said, are we going to die? And I said, no, we're not going to die. Uh, you know, I was scared, but I was firm in my belief that we were not going to die that day. And he said, okay. And then uh, it was it was uh, it was a crazy day, but that was one of the biggest one of the biggest uh, days that I've ever had at Channel Three. What has being in the media 
in the, in the news business taught you in life? Things aren't always what they appear to be. Um, that if you stick to it, you can make it happen. Hmm. I, I do a lot of writing for the great day, yeah. the show. You know, I have uh, stories that I'm assigned to that I have to go out and shoot and I have to edit. You know, I have to log them and I have to write the stories. And I'm not a great I don't I don't consider myself to be a great writer. Um, but every day I have to write or get ready to write a story. And it's like I look back and every day after I'm done with the story, I said, I did that and I'm going to do it again. Hmm. Persever a lesson in Perse perseverance. A lesson in perseverance. Okay. And if you want something bad enough, it can happen. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like your story I got out of this is, you know, just the, the deals you made with like FSB in the beginning. Like, give me a shot. We'll get the ratings up. Or, you know, going into another station and saying, I could do this, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, just two more questions. You've been super generous with your time. If you could give your 18-year-old or 21, if you could give your younger self, is <laughs> a big one, right, some advice, knowing what you know now, what would it be? Well, I, I would have dated more, you know. I would have said, hey, you know, throw caution to the wind. Let the reactions of people fall where they may fall um, and live your life the way that it was intended to be lived. Mm. don't hide because I hid you know I hid for a long time so I would look back at that 18 year old and say first of all I would say you know go into acting you're pretty good uh, <laughs> and, and then I would you know I would say don't hide and live your life okay and, and, and final question, there's, there's a, a, a famous podcast I listen to on NPR. There's a host, his name is Guy Raz, and it, it, he, he always asks this question. I think it's great, so I'm stealing it or borrowing it, however we, whatever we want to say here. But how much of your success has been pure luck, and how much is it from your sheer brilliance or talent? I'm going to say... Uh... 60 luck, 40 talent. Yeah. Yeah. Being in the right place at the right time. Taking a job that I didn't want to take at Brooks Brothers so that I was going to meet this person who was going to help me get into school, that I would go to the best school in the nation on a full scholarship to get out and get a job in Topeka. I mean, to think of it, it's just bizarre. Mm. You know, it's. I know, you know, people always say everything happens for a reason. And I do believe that. And I guess I was in where I was supposed to be. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say 60% luck, 40% talent. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because like Steve Jobs, you know, when he was alive, he would talk about, you know, you can't really connect the dots unless you look back. And right. You know, you, you think of these things, these little stepping stones like that lead you to where you are. So, yep. Yep. Life is yep. amazing. And any any final words before we part? Uh, thank, I want to just thank thank everybody. 
you know, for helping me have a, such a, you know, a, it's been a great ride. I hope it continues for uh, more years to come. And um, but I'm so appreciative. You know, I got an email. I got an email today. I mean, who, who's who's still getting? E you know, I get emails. I've been here to almost 24 years. And the woman went on. She wrote a whole page about just um, what it means to watch me on Channel Three. And I was like, this woman took time out of her day to be nice to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I, I, I'm just so grateful to the people who have supported me, both on air and off the air throughout the years. So I just want to say thank you. You're quite welcome. We love you. Oh, I love you back. <laughs> and and if people want to follow you and all things Scott Haney, where can they find you? Twitter? And, where are uh, you? Yeah, on Facebook, on Twitter, Scott.Haney3, I think it is. I, I, I know because my computer, I, I, everything is programmed directly. So I, I'm not quite sure. But, you know, just Google S. Haney. And make sure it's me, my official headshot from Channel 3. Because there's another one with me with yellow glasses. That's a fake one. Hmm. So there's like a couple of people have made fan pages throughout the years, but the one of me with my headshot is the official one. Okay, we'll post all those links in the in the in the post. Yeah, and right? I and my, my email is shaney at wfsb.com. I answer all of my own emails. And there we have it, my friends. That's Scott Haney from WFSB Channel Three on the show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I sure did. And you can catch Scott on WFSB in the morning starting at 4.30 a.m. My God, I'm never up that early. But he is on starting at that hour and right through the morning doing the weather. And later on in the afternoons on Great Day Connecticut alongside Kara Sundland. Visit WFSB.com for more information. And you can also find Scott on Twitter at Scott Haney 3 as well as Facebook and Instagram. Upfront is brought to you by Mason, an integrated brand communications firm located in Southern Connecticut that provides communications ingenuity through advertising, public relations, social media, digital, and media services. To learn more, visit mason23.com or send us an email Hello at mason23.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again. Take care.